0: Well, as I already said, we're in the midst of the season of Advent, and Advent comes from a Latin word which means arrival, and it's a, it's a season of waiting. It's a time of looking back, and, and while we wait for the next 20 days, can you imagine that? Three weeks from yesterday is Christmas. 20 days as we wait to celebrate Christmas, we symbolically, we symbolically wait with the saints who for thousands of years waited expectantly for the arrival of their Savior. They waited for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But we don't just symbolically wait for an event in the past. We also look forward and expectantly wait for the second advent, the second arrival of Jesus. This is a time when God is going to return to fully establish his kingdom and to to set everything that is wrong and make it right. So for this season of Advent, over the next few weeks, we're going to take time and we're going to examine the. Um, we're going to examine some portraits of some uh, some of the key players in the story of the first Advent. Over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at Mary, we're going to look at Joseph, we're going to look at the shepherds. But the season of Christmas does not end on December twenty fifth. The two weeks following Christmas, we're going to look at stories of the wise men, and finally, that of King Herod. And my hope in this is that this would be a journey where we can better understand the historical setting that Jesus was born into, but also find examples of God's faithfulness, examples of God's work that we can take home with us and apply in our lives some 2,000 years later. So if you want to pull out your Bibles... Bible apps, or just listen as I read along, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 26. Now, if you are not familiar with the Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that give us an account of the Nativity, and so we're going to be jumping between those two books over the next few weeks. They're the, the only two that gives. us the nativity, the birth of Jesus, as well as any indication of his childhood. Because Mark begins by jumping right into the... Mark is like... He's like the frenetic gospel, right? It, not only is he like jumping right into Jesus' ministry, but uh, as you read the transitions of Jesus going from one thing to to the next, it's always translated, and immediately they did this, and immediately they did that. John, on the other hand, does have, uh, you could argue, some, some birth nativity, but it focuses on kind of that, the picture of the supernatural, as opposed to just just the natural like we have in in Matthew and Luke. So hopefully that has given you guys some time to find the passage. So the first character we're going to look at is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so if you want to follow along with me while I read Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. From her. This morning, I have three things that I want us to investigate. First, I want to take some time and unpack a couple of the uh, historical statements from the text, right, to give some historical context to what is going on in the passage. And the second and third things I want to do, I'm going to do somewhat simultaneously, trying to look at some of the themes that the passage is revealing about how God works through this situation. And from there, also try to take some of those themes home with us, how they might apply to us in a relevant way to our lives. So I want you to look at verse 26. Right right at the, the, the outlet. The angel appeared to Mary in the sixth month. Now, I, I'm going I'm to get a little Bible nerdy on you here. I hope you can bear with me. So the Jewish New Year, also called Rosh Hashanah, is something that is usually celebrated in September. But the thing is, is that isn't the first month of the Jewish calendar. The first month of the Jewish calendar, I believe, is called Nisan, you know, like those cars you drive. Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Atonement, uh, which is also called Yom Kippur, are both celebrated in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. That means that the sixth month that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, would have been closer to mid-August when Gabriel appears to Mary. Now, we know that the conception of Jesus happens sometime in the next three months because Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, was pregnant. She was six months in, as the text tells us. She was pregnant with John the Baptist. And so when Mary visits Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Baptist in utero kind of leaps for joy at the presence of Jesus. So Jesus is physically present in some way there. So let's just assume conception of Mary in the month of August. So count with me. Nine months, typical pregnancy term. September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May. That has Jesus being born sometime in the late spring and early summer. Now wait a second, you might say, like, Why is it, then, that we celebrate his birth on December 25th? It's likely he wasn't actually born on December 25th. Now, I think this was a very intentional decision by the early church. Surrounding the church in those years were many pagan religions in the Roman Empire, people who worshipped multiple gods. They had their festivals, their own celebrations. And one of those festivals was called Saturnalia, It was a feast dedicated to the Roman god Saturn, the Greek equivalent of Kronos. This was also the time of the winter solstice, which was the longest night of the year, right? Shortest day of the year. Now my suspicion, I don't know this with certainty, but my suspicion is when the church is putting together its own feasts to celebrate their deity of Jesus... It's possible that no one knew the precise date of Jesus' birth. And so instead, the Christians, as they often did, began to co-opt this Roman festival. They did so because to show that Jesus, as God, is far and above all these other so-called gods. And I believe they symbolically placed it, his birthday, to coincide with both Saturnalia and the winter solstice. Saturnalia to showcase his dominion over all things. Right, these so-called gods that Paul says in his letters, especially the first Corinthians comes to mind when he talks about meat sacrifice to idols. He says, we know that like there's nothing behind these gods. It's just empty vapor. But in addition to that, winter being the darkest time of the year, Jesus in the Gospels is so often described as light, right? the light of the world. And what better way to celebrate the light shining in the darkness, not just figuratively, but literally celebrating the arrival of the light in the most bleak of nights. So I think that's my suspicion. I could be wrong. Take what I said with a grain of salt. But that's my suspicion as to why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, on December 25th. We've gotten four words into our passage, and already I think there's so much symbolism and meaning in Christ's arrival. Mary is described in verse 27 as a virgin. Now, just to make sure we don't miss this, that descriptor is repeated later in the verse and is also restated out of Mary's own mouth in verse 34. And this is meaningful for the symbolism of Christ's arrival because the supernatural pregnancy and birth from a virgin was predicted some 700 years prior by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, if you read the context of that, there are four nations that are attacking Israel, and there is a king who actually happened to be a pretty wicked king, so this displays the grace of God as well, that his grace is not based upon our performance, but this pretty wicked king Ahaz is starting to panic. Is this the end of my line? Are we going to get overrun? And the prophet Isaiah approaches him and offers this sign pertaining to this battle that, that seems about to happen. Basically saying it's not going to come to anything. God says there there this is just these foreign nations blowing smoke. And Isaiah says this, and you probably have heard this passage before read on Advent Sundays. Isaiah seven fourteen Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is one of these examples we see of prophecy so often in the Old Testament that has multiple levels because when King Ahaz heard it, it was meant to be comforting to him. It wasn't like, I'm now comforted because 700 years from now, there's going to be this miraculous birth where, the, where God becomes man. No, it's, it's comforting because something in, the, the short, uh, in a short time period was going to happen that was going to give him that sense of comfort. Something special was going to happen in his midst to encourage him, that Israel would not fall to ruin. But we see this time and time again. They're they're called archetypes or typology. That there are these signs hidden that had an initial fulfillment, but God all this time was kind of leaving a blueprint so that when Jesus, the Messiah, would come, we would recognize, tune up to be like, oh, oh, this means even so much more. So the gospel writers... Pick this signal up that this signal is also a sign for the future that God was at work again in something special. Moving on to the fact that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and this was a cultural process similar to our, closely to our understanding of engagement. Betrothal in the ancient world had two steps. First, there was the formal engagement and there was a contract with the offer of a bridal price, but then kind of fulfilling that that engagement about a year later when the couple would actually be married so they were in between this time that this contract and and bridal price had been paid but they had not yet been married and i think that the betrothal here is just another way to reiterate that mary was a virgin to the reader right harking back to what i said a moment ago last historical theme is in verse 32 that this child is from the house of david We see this in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Both of them have two different genealogies of Jesus. And and both of them pass through the lineage of King David. David would have lived about a thousand years before Jesus. Now this is really important. This is vital because in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David that someone from his line, one of his children, would rule in his stead forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 say this, When your days, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, this is one of these areas where the prophetic utterance had two layers to it because David physically had a son named Solomon whom God was with, and Solomon built up the temple. But it was a symbol of what was to come with the arrival of Jesus from the house of David who would come and rule forever, because Solomon died. He didn't make it to forever. Right? The, the Messiah was known to come out of the Davidic line, and he was recognized as a person from, that would restore Israel to their position of prominence. And this is part of the reason why that from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, the people in Jerusalem become disenchanted with him because they expected, like David, a military figure who was going to come and conquer all, who's going to throw off the yoke of the Romans. But they did not expect the meekness. Now, meekness in Scripture does not mean weak. Meekness is kind of like, not that he got walked over, but it's a reserve strength. He had the strength, but he did not use it. The meekness of Jesus that carried himself was unexpected by the people. Now these points, I hope, can help us to understand some of the historical context that Jesus was born into. But as we read, I think it is important for us to to get more than just a historical understanding to see what God is doing in our midst. To see what God was doing in their midst. To see what elements of his character were on display in this interaction. I have two major themes that I want to focus on this morning. And I hope that we can see how they have direct application for us as well. The first theme is this. God works in obscurity. Jesus, God in the flesh, had an arrival that was not heralded across the places of influences within the Roman Empire. God could have written his arrival on the clouds. We, we will see when we look at the shepherds that he did, but it was to, to a bunch of nobodies, so it kind of keeps that theme of obscurity going. But he, he, he could have written it on the, the clouds for everyone to see, but he didn't. He arrived quietly, and even in the announcement of Mary's pregnancy was done with little fanfare fair and, and little cultural significance. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, starting at chapter 1, the story doesn't actually begin with Jesus. It begins with his second cousin, John the Baptist. Before Mary is visited by the angel, a priest of the temple named Zechariah receives a word from an angel stating that his wife, who everyone thought was barren, Elizabeth, as I mentioned earlier, was going to have a son. But if we read that, we need to notice where Zechariah was when he received that message. He was on duty. He's on the clock in the temple of God in Jerusalem. So we have here Zechariah, who was a well-respected member of the community, who was in this place of significance in the temple. And when he came out of that temple muted, people would have known, there would have been signs that God was doing something right there. Now fast forward to Mary. There is no fanfare. There's no crowd. There's no people to witness. Mary is individually visited by Gabriel. The text says that she was living in Galilee of Nazareth, an obscure location, especially when compared to the temple, which was the seat of cultural signif- or, excuse me, religious significance in the region. In the Gospel of John, we see that Galilee itself was not a respected region to live in, because there were you know, some folks that were arguing over the identity of Jesus, and they were like, you know, like come on, bro, like, this can't be the guy we've been waiting for. Do you really believe the Messiah is going to be born in Galilee? So that's my paraphrase, at least, of what they said. But it's evidence that no one would have expected Galilee. It was some podunk town. Not only that, but who on earth was Mary? She she wasn't anyone of significance. Jesus is the one person who could have chosen by who, where, and how he arrived. He could have been born in a palace with a silver spoon in his mouth, but instead was birthed by a nobody, a young teenager. Mary, research historians would suggest, could have been, we don't know how old she was, but she could have been culturally as young as 12 when she received this special announcement. I mean, that blows my mind. Potentially a 12-year-old girl about to shoulder the weight of carrying the Messiah in uterus. Uh, And I know that might sound really shocking to us, but I want to encourage us not to fall like 12, like what's going on here? But I want, us, I want to encourage us not to fall victim to, to what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, that where we take what we know today, you know, our level of sophistication and culture, and use it to look down and dismiss the cultures of those who lived before us, especially thousands of years. But here's the thing. In this podunk town in northern Israel, to a poor, unwed teenage mother, a place where no one was be looking for him to show up and show off. It is in this manner that God chose to break through the world and enter human flesh. This is God working in obscurity. Just because there wasn't the glitz and glam didn't mean that God was silent. God was moving, but there was a quiet humility to this announcement. What that meant is that in order to see what God was doing, one needed to be quiet and pay attention. This is similar to what we see in God's interaction with the prophet Elijah. It wasn't in the storm, the high winds, it wasn't in the fire, it wasn't in those things that God was present, but in that still, small voice. Such a still, small voice, that if we find ourselves living a little bit too loud, we're liable to miss it, even if it's right in front of us. So I think there's some direct application for us that we need to be tuning ourselves, quieting ourselves in order to recognize when God is at work in our midst. We need to quiet our hearts, quiet our lives to see Him moving. I don't know about you, but I, I move like the Gospel of Mark at a frenetic pace, going from thing to thing to thing. Am I giving the space in my life to quiet myself to hear and see what God is doing. But I think there's another take-home that I want us to, to, to bring, bring out of this, because God's definition of success is completely countercultural to ours in our 21st century, especially a, a culture that is based around consumerism. We equate success with influence. If we have a large church, or if we're an influencer on social media, then we must be pleasing to God and doing His work. We think quantitatively that the, an impactful message of the gospel that goes to thousands of people is somehow more valuable to God than just if only two people are listening. But God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The things that we value are not always in alignment with that which God values even in places of faith. Some of the, the, the leadership team here at the church, we've been reading through a book called Lead by Paul David Tripp, and uh, we had a meeting this past Thursday, and we read this chapter on character. And in it, Paul described how so often, not Paul the apostle, but Paul the author of this book, describes that so often what, we, what our churches value, are charismatic preachers or effective ministers, Right? We think that if they can draw a crowd or lead people to Christ, then they must have value. And we place recognition on that. At Small Group, actually, this, this past Tuesday, we were recently chatting about a, a pastor who had a salary over $200,000. I don't make that much money. I can just be very upfront with you. We're not talking about these national figures like Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick. And again, I, I, don't get me started on kind of what their income levels are. But this is a pastor of a modest-sized church who makes over $200,000. And you know what? I looked it up. He lives in a community that the median income is just under $35,000. Something seems off to that in me. When that kind of financial compensation is provided, is it possible that it reveals to us that we are valuing skills and strengths disproportionate to the things that God values? We need to reclaim our ability to labor for God's kingdom in obscurity. Perhaps you've never received the attention or recognition that you feel that you deserved, but know that your faithfulness does not go unseen. It is not lost on God. Maybe that means that you feel stuck in a dead-end job that you hate. Right? You want God to provide something bigger and better. Maybe He will. But maybe He just wants you to, to labor there in obscurity. Don't make it the mistake of, of missing that it may be a season of waiting that God has you there for His purposes. You know, maybe you were hoping to be the one to get the lead role in the high school musical or, you know, whatever sport team you're involved in or whatever hobby you are part of. But instead of developing resentment for being passed over, trust that God sees your value, that he, he delights in your participation, whatever level that may be, because the economy of God's kingdom is that he uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And we see that in his announcement with Mary, that it's okay for us to labor, to work in obscurity, nobody may know our name no human may know our name but we are known intimately by the Lord and that's what matters the next theme that I want to share builds off of this one that Mary really was a nobody I know I know that um, other Christian traditions specifically the Roman Catholic faith has uh, puts a lot of of, of stock and mary and there's uh, something called the immaculate conception i always feel the need to say immaculate reception but because we're in pittsburgh that's what's in my brain but it's the immaculate conception which is not actually a miraculous conception about jesus but is mary being miraculously conceived most protestant churches don't hold to that doctrine um, so for all intents and purposes if you have a catholic background and are offended that i'm saying that i apologize but in for our purposes mary was a nobody but god used her in mighty ways Verses 28 and 30, the angel is reiterating to Mary that she is highly favored by the Lord. She was the, she, she was the object of God's grace and she was honored. Now, up until this point, Mary hasn't she hasn't done anything. She's really just been laboring faithfully, right? In, in obscurity. But she is honored by God. Not because of her own merit. Not because she earned it, but simply because she was the chosen vessel for this demonstration of God's grace. Now hopefully, if you've been with us long enough as I'm saying this, the light bulbs are starting to go off. That you're having flashbacks of like the dead horse that I'm beating. That we've been talking about through the gospel-centered life. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are loved and honored by God. Period. Full stop not because of anything that we have done, but because of his grace that he's lavished upon us. Just like Mary, we aren't loved because we are special. And conversely, we are not unloved just because we're awkward and make mistakes all the time. But we're called worthy by God because of his overwhelming affection for us. We struggle with insecurity that we often feel when faced with his grace like God says he loves us and we're kind of like who me like why Mary puts our feelings into words in verse 34 how will this be since I am a virgin now a superficial reading of this is focusing on the sexual ethic and yes it is there but I think we miss so much if we purely limit it to this yes there is a cry of like that sounds impossible how could a virgin carry a baby right you know how this works But I think a deeper response of Mary is that she's saying she is young and untested by the world. She had no resume that she could display to show that she was capable to carry this task. The angel responds by giving the the, the mechanism for this miraculous conception. But again, deeper in his words are words of comfort, not just saying, well, this is how it's going to happen. And I think the deeper level is, it's not what you are capable of, but what God is able to do. Nothing is impossible for God. He can create life out of nothing. He's done it before with all of creation, as we sang this morning. He can do it again for one small child. Verse 38 shows us the character of Mary. I am the Lord's servant. Mary accepts this responsibility. Mary takes this charge knowing that it's going to have consequences. Mary would have been an object of doubt and judgment and ridicule. As I mentioned a few moments ago, she was an unwed, poor teenage mother. You know the people in her village would talk, right? You know that they would doubt her, like, uh-huh, like you say this baby is from God, I'm sure. But Mary brazenly takes on that burden burden to be obedient with what God has given her. Now, I think the lesson for us. Here is that God can do great things through those who are willing to be used by him. God can use any of us. There doesn't need to be anything special about us in order for us to contribute and participate in God's kingdom. Because our value is not based upon what we bring to the table, what skills we offer, but on the one who wills and works through us. I know I sound like a broken record, but our identity is not measured by our impact. We shouldn't look to these you know, charismatic figures or people who have these gifts that are highlighted by culture and, and wish that we were them. God has made you who you are, and He can use you in what He may. Uh, you may have heard pastors say, pastor say this before, that God doesn't make any junk. You're not junk. We are not measured. Our value is not measured by our impact. God's not like wowed at us when we do something, you know, when we excel at something because he created us. He knows what we're capable of, what our strengths and passions are. But even for those of us who feel that they're not good at anything, that you feel like you have no skill per se that you can hang your hat on, your value and worth is not contained by what you can do. Your value is based upon whose you are, who you belong to. Just like Mary, in the text she was favored by God before she did anything, but she was favored because God had dispensed his grace upon her. He gave her the gift of his presence to be with her. When we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we receive that same promise of presence. We receive the same grace where the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. That means that we are given credit for it. By receiving God's grace, we are on equal footing with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Again, I know some traditions elevate her, and she is to be admired. But as she indicates in her prayer later in the chapter, it's often called Mary's Magnificat. I probably pronounced that wrong. In verse 48, She acknowledges the link, that she is going to be called blessed in future generations, but it's not because of anything intrinsically special about her, but because she received the blessing and presence of God. It is purely by grace that she is esteemed, the same grace that we receive. Too often in life, especially in ministry, we get this backwards. Our natural inclination is to call the equipped, to call those who have the tools, who are dynamic, who have these outward strengths to particular areas. They're the ones that we want to get on our team. But instead of calling the equipped, we ought to be equipping the called. Because only one of those two groups of people is guaranteed to have the presence of God with them. Because when God calls you to something, he doesn't let you fumble walking through it alone. But he promises to walk every step with you. In Mary, we see this, the intersection of these two themes. Right? First, that God often works through the obscure, the weak things of the world, and that we can labor under the radar without recognition knowing that we are in good company. But success and intrinsic worth are not based upon what we do, but who we belong to. As we continue our journey to the manger, I want to encourage you this week to rest in God. Even if you don't receive the accolades of the world, right? God sees your value and God cherishes you. Out of love, Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross so that we could be adopted into his family may we rest in that love and presence and be content with what the Lord has provided for us. May we look at Mary and see so much of ourselves in her, overlooked by the world, but delighted in by God and obedient to the calling that He has placed on our lives. Join me in prayer. Lord, You love us deeply more than we could ever think or imagine. Lord, give us reminders of that love. Speak to us, reminding us that we are not alone, that while we labor in obscurity, while we might long to be more famous or impactful than we are, that it's not those marks that set us aside for your love, but that your love comes from grace before anything that we have done to deserve it. Lord, be with us. Send us your grace. Delight in us and allow us to walk step in step, hand in hand with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.